0: Welcome back to Subject to Cross. I am your co-host, Pete Kratza. And I'm your other co-host,
1: Caroline Donato.
0: That's the first time I've ever started it.
1: And Pete started it because I can't start it. I'm too tired. (laughs) Um, What are we talking about today? I think the next few episodes, we're talking about what's on our mind. And what's on our mind is reflective of things we've been working on but kind of broader broader topics than that because we're not going to talk about our actual clients. Um, something that's been on our mind and is constantly Speak on our mind. Speak for yourself. There's rarely anything on my mind. Aside from paddle and yeah. your
0: cats right. and your kids. Right, in that order.
1: <laughs> and your wife.
0: Yeah, she, well I gotta say she's first. She's number one. Yeah.
1: Um, but something that's been on my mind is mitigation and sentencing. And it's on my mind because when we get any sort of case, we, we start our analysis of the case almost backwards. What are the charges? What's the gravity of the charges? And then what is the conduct? And then how can we approach the conduct, the charges, and then if there's exposure to criminal responsibility for that how can we get the best outcome for in the case and when anybody is charged with a crime that's inherently aggravating because crimes are inherently aggravating so what do you do to balance that out and try to get a good outcome for a client who is responsible for criminal offenses mitigation mitigation is the opposite of aggravation good facts good things a client can do so any case we ever have, whether it's a trial or a plea or some sort of criminal culpability or allegation, we are always looking at it from a, a well-rounded point. Of obviously, we got here because there's some concern, something happened to even bring a client to us, and how can we address it to the most effective, for in the most effective way for the client.
0: Yeah, I, I I hesitate, and I'm looking at the ceiling while you're talking. But I am like listening to everything that you're, you're saying. You're not rolling your eyes. That's, I'm not. No, that's being pensive. I had pensive. a doctor like that once. He would never make eye contact with you. He would always be looking somewhere else. But I knew he was thinking. I was thinking. I hesitate to speak in absolutes. There are some cases that that we handle, and that I've handled historically where it's all or nothing. In other words, they're saying that the client did it, client might have an alibi, client is just it it wasn't me, you know, the shaggy defense. So I'm not necessarily looking at mitigation in those cases. Those cases are, we're trying to win it. But what you said about working backwards, if there is a client who, if we do have a client who clearly has some level of culpability and a lot of our cases are like that. You know, it's, it's they've charged four things and they might be responsible for one of them. But what we look at, we do work, I do work backwards. We look at what the exposure is on each allegation against them and we target the ones that we want to avoid and then we talk about how we're going to avoid them. Whether that is factually, you know, in terms of a defense, Or whether it is in in terms of trying to negotiate with a prosecutor and that's where mitigation is extremely important.
1: I think I was using the term mitigation in a broader sense because we're speaking to a broad audience. You know mitigation in our field uh, specifically can mean you know doing some sort of um, you know, rehabilitation or addressing culpability. You know, I'm responsible for this, but here's how I'm going to get to the root of the issue. This is how, you know, do a forensic psychological evaluation, do a drug and alcohol evaluation, a mental health evaluation, follow recommended treatment. That is some legal mitigation. But when when I was talking about it from the outset of a case, mitigation to me and speaking to lay people is also, well, what are some defenses that can be Mitigating in the face of an aggravating case um, that can be factually mitigating when it comes to negotiating an outcome. But the point of this is is every time we're looking at a case and we're trying to figure out how to resolve it, we're looking at it from all different angles.: um, Well, I think that's what
0: separates good defense lawyers from a lot of prosecutors. Uh, you know I like to take shots at prosecutors. Um, who tend to be more black and white and at times myopic i do think that there are a lot of people who do what we do who might scratch the surface of things like mitigation and they are doing their clients a disservice not to think ahead not to look at the case from from all angles and to you have to have contingent plans, right? You know, we're, we're going to try the case, we're going to, we're going to try to get the client acquitted. But if the client's not acquitted of everything, we better damn well have a plan B, which is, okay, we go into damage control mode. And the time to go into damage control mode isn't after you get a verdict, it's preparing for that. And all along the way, you need to be um, transparent with the client. Um, and make sure that the client is aware of all those contingencies.
1: And I think the point is also, any approach to a defense or a strategy, whether it be with an eye towards trial, or an eye towards a negotiated plea, or an eye towards an open plea where we can agree with the government or the commonwealth or the state on the conviction, but we're not in agreement on the sentence and we're leaving the sentence up to the judge, we're looking at it with, in a mosaic sense. How can we meet all needs based off of things we can control and things we can't control, like how a prosecutor could receive information, how a judge could receive information, what the client is willing to do in light of the particular circumstances. So all that, all that is to say, every case is very specific. it's almost surgically specific to the client and the allegations. Um, the reason why I wanted to talk about this today was it's just been a heck of a year getting you know I have mitigation on the brain, I have defenses on the brain and I have murder on the brain <laughs> and we're, <laughs> and we're g- m- multiple uh, homicides this year that have resolved and the resolution of those cases. Is that Snoop Dogg, murder,
0: murder on my mind. There's like a rap song. Money about. on my mind. No, there's a murder. A murder was a case that they gave me. Great Snoop Dogg song.
1: But I think in those cases in the last year, it's been such a compilation of all the You've things. You've very
0: good at just ignoring me and moving right on. I don't. I, I appreciate that.
1: Go ahead. I'm looking at you, but yeah. right through you yeah. or past you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, And we'll talk about murder in our our next episode, but since we told you we we start a case looking at it backwards, looking at the criminal exposure from the outset based on the allegations, we want to talk to you about a couple of statutes that are meaningful to us and kind of help steer how we analyze a case and prepare a strategy for a defense, whether it be a trial, a plea, plea negotiations, or a sentencing. Um, The one phrase that is consistently on my mind when analyzing a case and preparing a defense is what outcome is sufficient but not greater than necessary for this person. And it really, it's a broad stroke approach stemming from a federal statute, which is um, the parsimony provision from federal sentencing and it's Section 3553A under Title 18 of the United States Code. And 3553A says the court shall impose a sentence sufficient but not greater than necessary to comply with the purposes of sentencing, which are the nature and circumstances of the offense and the history and characteristics of the defendant, the need for the sentence imposed to reflect the seriousness of the offense, to promote respect for the law, and to provide just punishment for the offense, to afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct, to protect the public from further crimes of the defendant, and to provide the defendant with needed educational, vocational training, medical care, or other correctional treatment in the most effective manner. So what that all says and really means is when you have somebody accused of a crime and you have a victim of a crime or an alleged victim. What sentence or outcome is sufficient but not greater than necessary to make sure the public is protected, the alleged victim is made whole if that is necessary, that the public is deterred, that that person is deterred, and there is rehabilitation um, done that is needed? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, especially when people have criminal culpability, they're not going to be, in most circumstances, incarcerated forever or on probation forever or on pretrial conditions forever. They do go back out into society. Well, we want them to go back out into society with the best outcome and with the tools to never be in that situation again.
0: Agreed, there is a difference and I assume we're gonna get into it between the federal statute and our um, Pennsylvania sentencing statute and and principles. Um, I'm sorry, I was distracted. I was looking up the word parsimony because I never understood in the context of that statute how that word fits in, because normally it means an extreme unwillingness to spend money or to use resources. But I think what it means in the context of that statute is that you have to be careful in terms of weighing the punishment versus those other factors, and that it shouldn't be any greater than it needs to be I'm talking in layman's terms now, in terms of what the punishment is. The difference in Pennsylvania and the federal statute is we don't have that uh, sufficient but not greater than necessary language.
1: We don't, and other states don't have it either, but because it's a federal statute, it's a well-known principle. Uh, Judges do rely on it to make practical decisions when they are weighing the offense conduct and the offender in front of them and in rendering a decision. Um, I used it recently in the context of plea negotiations for a first degree homicide case in a different state because it was relevant. It, it was relevant not only to the mitigation of the client, you know, the rehabilitation needs of the client, the upbringing of the client, but it was also relevant to the offense conduct which I was submitting to the prosecutors, was different than that which was alleged. It was lesser. So it's all to say that it's not a one-size-fits-all for every case. It's not a one-size-fits-all for every person, nor should it be. And our state uh, statute does not have this language. Um, yeah, I was.
0: Gonna, you want me to read that? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, I was looking up another statute because it's not working um this is from uh title 42 section 9721 general standards and again similar to the uh federal statute that caroline relied upon you know that that statute talks about factors to be considered in imposing a sentence um in this one it's called general standards in selecting from the alternatives set forth in subsection a which include an order of probation, guilt without further penalty, that's rarely um, administered, partial confinement, total confinement, et cetera. Um, the court shall follow the general principle that the sentence imposed should call for total confinement consistent with another section relating to total confinement. And the protection of the public, the gravity of the offense as it relates to the impact on the life of the victim and on the community and the rehabilitative needs of the defendant Um, so there's you know none of that uh, uh, sufficient but not greater than necessary language but as Caroline stated earlier you can still argue to it argue it frankly in my experience it depends on the judge because some judges will just say well this is the standard I'm using in in Pennsylvania
1: I've argued it Multiple times in Pennsylvania, and the judges actually have been receptive because it's arguing it in tandem with Pennsylvania's mm-hmm. statutes. Um, and it's really just a greater principle of what's fair here. You know, what's the fair outcome? What's going to make uh, the victim whole? What's going to make the DA's office or the government satisfied? Um, what's going to make sure our client gets the best outcome? takes responsibility if there is responsibility to take, but also does well in the future.
0: And the broader point here, it seems to me, is that when we are making the decision um, collectively with a client that they're going to be uh, pleading guilty or, or that they've been, you know, after a trial they've been convicted and we're preparing for sentence, it's very important to pay attention to the language. Of the pertinent sentencing statutes, not just to calculate the guideline sentence. And that'll be a future podcast because they've changed, they're going to change all these, uh, the sentencing guidelines in Pennsylvania. Um, But the point is that the language of these statutes, I find it as a practical um, uh, uh, practice point. In other words, when we're going through the sentencing, and, and I know you do this as well, Caroline, if we submit a sentencing memorandum, you use the language of the statutes and you kind of remind the judge you know, of, of the factors. Like, and I was distracted earlier, I apologize. This General Standards talks about section 9725 relating to total confinement. Well, that statute has some helpful language as well. The court shall impose a sentence of total confinement if having regard to the nature and circumstances of the crime and the history, character, and condition of the defendant It is of the opinion that total confinement is necessary because one, there is undue risk that during confinement the defendant will commit another crime. Two, the defendant is in need of correctional treatment that could be provided most effectively by his commitment to an institution. Or three, a lesser sentence will depreciate the seriousness of the crime of the defendant. In Pennsylvania and, and federally, we have guidelines the guidelines, unless there is a mandatory sentence that applies, and there are not a lot of mandatory sentences in Pennsylvania, aside from murder and and um, DUI, DUI statutes, the judge has discretion. And we're constantly in the context of uh, uh, pleas, particularly pleas where the, the sentence is going to be up to the judge. That's an open plea. Um, trying to get the judge to exercise their discretion. We first try to get a DA to exercise their discretion. That sometimes is like banging my head against this uh, wooden table. But failing that, we take it to the judge, and that's an, an open plea, and that's where all these sentencing factors come in.
1: There's also language in the Pennsylvania Sentencing Guideline Statute Um, about the purpose of a sentence pursuant to the guidelines in Pennsylvania and it it shares that language again. Uh, the The guidelines establishes a sentencing system with a primary focus on retribution but one in which the recommendations allow for the fulfillment of other sentencing purposes including rehabilitation, deterrence and incapacitation. Incapacitation meaning just get them off the street, deterrence meaning deter the public generally from doing that kind of behavior, deterring the person who committed the behavior. This is specific deterrence from doing it. Um, Rehabilitation, that could take so many different forms, mental health, drug and alcohol, um, some form of rehabilitation to make sure they get to the root of why that offense behavior was even done in the first place. But what's different in Pennsylvania versus federally is it's that primary focus on retribution it's um it, it it's it's just meaner it's meaner yeah <laughs> it's it's you know people who are in the position of c- committing crimes most of them aren't sociopathic most of them aren't people that need to be taken off the street indefinitely there's some sort of correctional action that usually needs to be taken if there is criminal responsibility and that's why i like the federal statute more it gives the judge more discretion And it puts the government on notice of that discretion as to what's really fair here for this person. So anyway, we won't belabor the point. Um, Pete and I have had a lot of very serious cases this year that have resolved very favorably for our clients for good reason. And this language is something that we rely on very early on and throughout the course of our defense strategy in obtaining those results. And I don't think it's something that the public tends to know about, unless you're in the criminal law world. But, you know, people make jokes, you know, how do criminal lawyers sleep at night? No, I sleep great. I sleep, well, not last night because my daughter woke me up. But I sleep well because if someone comes to us with a problem, we can help fix it. We can help people get better, which actually translates better for society. And mitigation and uh, th- this kind of approach to a case, this well-rounded approach, I think, you know, does just that. So, I completely agree. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about when it comes to mitigation and sentencing generally?
0: Just uh, the other thing that's really interesting to me um, is in Pennsylvania, for instance, Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing will uh, prepare yearly reports that track across the Commonwealth sentencing tendencies um, in all the counties. And one of the helpful things that I've always found, and I'm sure I've spoken about this with you, is that they will even go so far as to when there is a mitigated sentence imposed for a certain type of crime within a certain guideline range, they'll track the reasons that were given for mitigation, that's always been very helpful. Early on in my career, I would go and look at that, look at them, and say, "Oh, which of these applies to to me?" And then again, you can kind of educate a judge, especially like here, we're going to have judges that have we have like five new judges coming in. And in Chester say, County, Pete means what, what we're asking for is given, you know, is not so unusual uh, because a prosecutor. We'll answer that with no. This is the guideline range. We want to hammer the guidelines. This is, we what, we this. This this is, is what we typically do. This is what is done here in Chester County, um, and I, I find it to be helpful to to kind of put it a, a judge at ease, just like we try to put juries at ease to to make the right decision. So yeah, I mean, sentencing is um, it's a large part of what we do. I mean, you know, we we have trials, we win trials, but a lot of our clients have some level of culpability. So a lot of cases are damage control cases, and it's not simple. And, you know, that's, I think, what separates us from some other lawyers who are just going to go in and see what they can get from a prosecutor and say, well, go to the client, well, this is what the guidelines say. Well, you know what? There's work to be done outside the guidelines. Maybe that should be the title of this. There's
1: work to be done outside the guidelines. Yeah, we like to color outside the lines. That too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for this episode. That sounds good to me. Well, you, you signed us in. You want to sign us out?
0: I don't remember how to do that.
1: Signing off. Oh, signing off. Oh, wait. If you have questions for Subject to Cross, I always forget this. You can email us at subjecttocross at com. That's spelled. You spell subject to cross. It's three words. Put them together at m-a-c-e-l-r-e-e dot com. Signing off. Bye.